Good morning. Uh, today we're going to be wrapping up our Equip Discipling New Believers series. Uh, but before we jump into our uh, fifth and final subject on that, I wanted again to just promote these little booklets to you guys. Um, these are the Sun Life booklets that we are selling out in the uh, foyer for a suggested donation. And uh, these are the five different things that we've touched on throughout the last four weeks and then today in our sermon series. It's an extremely helpful resource if you're doing one-on-one -on -one discipleship or small group discipleship, something like that. Uh, it's a very, very good resource. Um, one, uh, one category here or area that I wanted to promote it to you is to you as parents. Um, I know that you guys want to disciple your children. You are the chief disciplers of your children. Uh, that's not meant to be outsourced to the church or to your pastors. This is your job. This is a really, really good resource to, for you to have as parents. If you have like a late grade schooler, junior high, high school age kids, I want to see you out in the foyer picking a pack of these up after the service. Really, really good uh, to use in discipleship with your children. So I commend it to you as, as parents. Uh, now before we jump into feeding on God's word, which is the last uh, area where we believe that it's essential for new believers to grow in their faith, I just want to recall where we've been a little bit. Um, this whole series has been about equipping you to equip new believers. So we want you to grow, but we also want to be, you to be walking with other people who need to grow as well. And we've covered four things and a fifth today that we think are essential for a new believer to understand and embrace. Uh, the first is their identity. They need to know who God is and who they are. And next, they need to learn how to talk, talk to God in prayer specifically. They need to learn how to walk, how to walk by the Spirit of God. As Dwayne preached on last week, they need to learn how to clean themselves. Uh, where do I go when I mess up? And then today we'll be looking at feeding. We need to learn how to feed ourselves on the Word of God. So let me just go ahead and start out here by praying for us and asking for God to come and help us to hear and to submit to His Word. Father, we, we thank you for uh, the immense opportunity and privilege that we have to be here and to worship you together as a family. We're grateful for what Christ has done for us, and we are longing to grow in our faith and to help others grow in their faith as well. So as we come to your word uh, and see its beauty and its glory, I pray that you would help us to be motivated to take it up and to feed on it. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I remember a little over a month ago, uh, my wife and I found ourselves in Canton uh, on a date night, and we were trying to decide where we were going to eat for dinner. Um, and we ended up landing on Olive Garden. And Olive Garden is an awesome restaurant. I'm just curious, how many of you guys love Olive Garden? Okay, very good. Pretty much the whole first service raised their hands, and uh, it's an awesome restaurant, right? It's almost as awesome as Chick-fil-A. It's not, but it's very, very close. Uh, I love some Italian food. I love Olive Garden, and so we were like, awesome, we haven't been there in a while, let's go. Uh, if you don't know me very well, I'm a creature of habit when it comes to food. Um, typically what I do when I go to a restaurant is I find something that I really like, 
and I get it the next time I go, and the next time I go, and the next time I go. Just every time I go, I get that one thing that I really like. And it had been such a long time since we had been to an olive garden. I'm flipping through the menu, and I'm like, what did I get last time I was here? And, and I couldn't remember because uh, I'm, I have a bad memory, and Abby couldn't remember either because she doesn't care too much what I eat very much. Um, and so I ended up going to the chicken section, and I landed on stuffed chicken marsala. I don't know if you've ever eaten this before. At all. Have you eaten it? Okay. It's, it is fantastic. So they give you these two just like juicy chicken breasts with just this awesome sauce on them. And in between the two, there's like, there's just cheese like this thick. It's like a burger of cheese. And you know how Olive Garden does. They, you know, when they bring your meal out, they're like, would you like cheese on top of that? And I'm like, yes, I would like cheese on top of that. Um, and so you get some more cheese put on top, and I remember just sitting there looking at this plate, looking at how beautiful and amazing it was. I was like, I got my chicken here, cheese, I got my mashed potatoes, of course you got breadsticks and salad, right? And I'm just kind of looking at it and just kind of taking it in uh, visually before I take it in with my, with my mouth, right? And I was just, the more and more that I looked at it, and the more and more that I saw how good it looked, it made me want to eat it. And so we, we took it up and we ate, uh, and it was, it was fantastic. It was awesome. I'm going to get it the next time uh, that I go there. Now I say that uh, to help illustrate the way we could handle the word here this morning. And we talk about feeding on God's word. I think that there's two things that are possibilities. Uh, The first is that I could teach you how to eat. I could teach you how to study the Word of God. I could teach you how to cut it up, how to put it in your mouth, how to digest it. I could teach you how to study, interpret, and apply the Word. I didn't feel like I had enough time to do justice to how big of a topic that actually is. So rather than doing that, what I want to do with you this morning is just to consider the nature of the Word of God. I want us to consider, I just want us to sit back and like I did with that meal, just sit back and appreciate the beauty of what we have, that it might motivate us to take up the word and begin to make proper use of it. So that's the route that we're taking here this morning. If you're interested in learning how to study the Bible, how to actually eat, Uh, I actually have a class that we offer somewhat regularly here at Fairlawn. It's a 10-week class that you can take that's all about studying the Word. So I I commend that to you uh, if you're like, that's really really what I need. Um, So uh, looking at the aim here and what we're trying to accomplish as we just take some time to gaze at the Word this morning, um, we want to grasp three things. We want to grasp the necessity, the purpose, and the glory of the Word of God that we might be motivated to take it up and eat, all right? So the first thing that we're going to look at here is the necessity of the word. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4, the gospel of Matthew. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context as to where we are in the gospel at that point. So Matthew chapter 4 picks up right after Jesus' baptism when he begins his public ministry, uh, and he is immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness 
where he is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and then at the end of that 40 days and 40 nights, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And, and in this passage, we see Jesus so clearly lay out the necessity of Scripture for our lives. So let's begin by reading Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now notice here again the setting. Jesus having fasted, that is not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. What does the text say? Quite obviously, he was hungry, right? He was hungry. And uh, then Satan comes and he says, prove to me that you are the son of God. Prove it to me. Take these stones and turn them into bread for yourself. And Jesus here shows us the necessity of the word of God for our lives by quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8.3, in an answer to Satan. He says, Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now the comparison here that Jesus is making between bread and the word of God is rather astonishing. Let's not forget again the context. Forty days and forty nights without food, he was hungry, and at the prospect of satisfying his physical hunger, he tells Satan, this life is not all about the bread. That the word of God can give me something and is necessary for my life in a way that, the, that, that bread cannot do. He's comparing this physical bread to the word of God. And that the word of God is something that we ought to live by just as we live by that physical food that we take in. You see, Jesus is showing us that the word of God is as essential to our lives as the physical food that we eat. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the word of God is as essential to your life as the physical food that you eat? Now, there's an easy way to test our belief in this truth. So let's test it for a moment. Answer this question, not out loud, just to yourself, how often in a day do you take in food, physical food? Now, for most of us, it's three times a day, right? We have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. For some of us, we have breakfast, and then in between breakfast and lunch, we have a snack, and then we eat lunch, and then in between lunch and dinner, we have a snack, and then we eat dinner, and then after dinner, before we go to bed, we have some ice cream or something, right? Some of us are eating all day long, but for the majority of us, it's three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Second question, how often in a day do you meaningfully take in the word of God? If you believe that 
the word of God is as essential to your life as the physical food you take in, should there not be an equivalence there between the amount of meaningful time you take in food and the amount of meaningful time you take in the word? You see, if a child does not eat, he will not grow. Likewise, if we as disciples are not in the word of God, we will not grow. I want to encourage you as parents here for a moment on this point. You are the chief disciplers of your children. You can give them something I can't. You can give them something children's ministry can't or junior high or high school can't. And you need to understand, realize, and embrace that. Per this point, are you as parents teaching your children the necessity of the word of God for their lives? Are you teaching and modeling for them that the word of God is as necessary to their lives as the food they eat? One way that Abby and I try to do this, and we're very imperfect and inconsistent at it, but what we strive for is to uh, craft and structure our family worship times, that is our reading of the word, prayer, and singing, around our meals. I found this to be helpful on a number of accounts. First, it's a lot harder for your kids to talk when they have food in their mouth. Uh, They're using their ears a little bit more when they have food in their mouth, so that's like a practical help there. Um, But uh, more importantly... If we take the time to open the word and invest in our relationship with God every time we are taking in physical food, it creates a parallel in their minds that tells them, man, this is really important. We do it as often as we take in food, right? It creates that needed parallel in their minds and helps them to understand the necessity of the word of God. Now, the necessity of the Word of God for our lives should somewhat go without saying, but it actually needs to be said, and I think that the reason why it needs to be stressed is because nowadays in America and beyond, there are many Christians who are seeking an experience of God that is unmediated by the Word of God. We often see this, and I see this most frequently in some of the radical charismatic movements that are in the States and and beyond. Uh, They'll say things like, all you need is the Spirit of God. My connection to God is, is, is just with the Spirit. Or the things in which they practice undermine the necessity of the Word of God. They become engaged in things that are not found in the Word of God and 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 potentially even contradictory to it, all for the sake of being connected to the Spirit. And one thing that we need to understand and recognize as their influence grows is that they misunderstand that the Word of God goes out in conjunction with the Spirit of God. When the Word of God goes, the Spirit of God goes. The Spirit uses the Word of God to connect us to Christ, to connect us to God in relationship. 
And I'm not saying that every charismatic Christian is, is wrong here. There are some that are very good and some that are very helpful, but we have to realize that there are people who are devaluing the necessity of the word of God in practice. And some people who don't even believe that the word of God is that necessary. I was just talking in the foyer with somebody who we were talking about the authority of the Bible, which we'll talk about in a moment. If you go to a conservative church and you've been in a conservative church your whole life, you are in the severe minority. If your church believes in the authority of the word of God, severe minority in the states and in our world. And we have to understand the trajectory of Christianity is moving away from the necessity of the word of God, not embracing it. We have to understand that Jesus is communicating to us here the word of God is essential for him as the son of God. How much more essential and necessary is it for us? Being in the word of God is necessary for the disciple to grow. But it is not enough to simply know that it is necessary. We must also understand why it is necessary. And we see why it is necessary in our next two points in considering the purpose of the word and the glory of the word. Let's begin or let's uh, determine first the purpose of the word. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy, or Paul rather, wrote two letters to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. And in this second letter to Timothy, in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he reveals to us the beautiful purpose of the word of God for the people of God. So let's begin and see it here in verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3. Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I don't want to pass over what Paul says here right at the beginning, because per what I just said about people moving away from the necessity of the word, I think it's very important. Paul here in this, this verse 16 gives us what might be the clearest expression of biblical authority found in the Bible itself. Listen to what he says. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. The word of God is the very breath of God to the people of God. This is an essential truth for the disciple to embrace. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And this truth of the divine origin and authority of the Bible demands that we not treat the Bible or the scriptures like we treat every other book with a take it or leave it mentality. We can't do that. And we shouldn't do that. This book, unlike any other has the authority to direct and steer and influence our lives more than anyone or anything else in this world. It is the very breath of God, and we must acknowledge it as such. 
Now, Paul speaks briefly here about the authority of Scripture, but his main point is to talk about the purpose that it has in our lives. And he goes on to tell us that in the rest of 16 and 17. He summarizes in verse 17 that the purpose of the Scriptures is to equip us for every good work. And then backing up in verse 16, he actually tells us how the Scripture does that. So Paul lists four ways that the Scripture is profitable for us as disciples. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, these four things address two critical areas of the life of the disciple. The first two, teaching and reproof, address our doctrine, what we believe, that the Scripture is sufficient for establishing doctrine. And the second two, for correction and training in righteousness, deal with our conduct, the way that we live our lives in light of what we believe. So let's take these two areas and these four things and unfold what Paul means by them and how the scriptures are sufficient for these things in our lives. So first, Paul uh, shows us here in the area of doctrine that the word of God is profitable for establishing truth. He says that the word of God that is breathed out by God is profitable for teaching. Now what Paul means by teaching primarily is the acquisition of the knowledge of the truth. Actually being taught the truth. The study of and the reading of the scriptures is the primary way in which we acquire a knowledge of the truth about God and about man, and about our world. It's found here in the Scriptures. Paul is saying that the Scriptures are sufficient to give us this, to establish truth in our minds. Secondly, Paul shows us that the Word of God is profitable for rebuking doctrinal error. It is profitable for establishing truth and teaching us, and it is profitable for rebuking us in reproving us when we are believing what is not consistent with it. Now, what we must do when we come to the Word of God is we must not come to the Word of God in a prideful manner, believing that we have all of our theological ducks in a row and that this Scripture can not correct us, cannot rebuke us, and cannot teach us anything. We cannot come to the word with such pride. Rather, we must come in humility with a willingness to be taken to school by the word and a willingness to submit ourselves to it, allow it to be our master rather than we its master. The scripture is profitable for reproving us when we believe something that is contradictory to what God has said. You see, Paul is showing us here that the scriptures are completely sufficient for establishing knowledge of the truth and maintaining the truth. It's completely sufficient in areas of doctrine, the area of our life of belief and what we believe. Paul goes on to address the other area of conduct. He says that the scriptures are profitable for correction and training in righteousness. Now, this third way that Scripture is profitable by way of correction is when it corrects us when we are living contrary 
to the word of God, contrary to God's standard. Scripture correcting us is the primary way in which God brings us into the likeness of his son. It's the primary way in which God sanctifies his people. And if we are not regularly looking into the word of God as into a mirror, allowing it to confront our sinful actions, thoughts, desires, and words, we should not expect to grow as disciples of Jesus. You see, we must take up the word and allow it to examine our lives. We must look at it and see ourselves in it. We shouldn't take up the word and read it and be like, oh, he's talking about self-control here. I know a guy who really needs some self-control. If that's what we're doing with the word, we're doing it wrong. We need to take up the word of God and ask, what is this word saying to me? How is it seeking to correct my sin? How is it seeking to bring me into the image of Christ? The scriptures are perfectly sufficient and profitable to do this. The final way that scripture is useful that Paul speaks of here for the disciple is for training us in righteousness. So scripture not only corrects us when we are living contrary to God's standard, but positively, it also prepares us to live a life that pleases God. In other words, following Jesus is not just about avoiding what is wrong, but seeking to do what is right. Paul says that not only does the word of God correct us, but positively it provides for us the knowledge and understanding of how we ought to live our lives in a pleasing manner unto God. The scriptures fully prepare us to live in a righteous way. Considered in totality, what Paul is saying here is that the scriptures are completely sufficient to establish and maintain truth, the doctrinal area of our lives, and to keep us walking faithfully with God in areas of conduct. Seeing the purpose of scripture, we ought to receive Matthew Henry's encouragement to us. He says, oh, that we may love our Bibles more. And keep closer to them than ever. God has a beautiful purpose in his word for us. And this helps to show us the necessity of the word of God for our lives. If we are not in the word of God, where do we expect to find these answers to belief and conduct in our lives? Scripture is necessary if we're going to live lives of faithfulness to God. So the word of God is not only necessary for our lives, but it is completely authoritative and immensely profitable for our growth as disciples. Now there is one thing left that we must consider about the nature of scripture, and that is its glory. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. There are a lot of things that people could put in the category of the glory of the word of God. I'm just going to tell you what I think is glorious about the word of God. 
I think that the glory of the Word of God is found in its ability or power to transform our lives. We see this first in Hebrews chapter 4 as the author to the Hebrews defines for us the living nature of the Scriptures. So look at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 and we'll see what he says there about this. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The author of Hebrews here reveals to us what sets the Bible apart from every other book that has ever been written. This book is not simply words or ink on a page, but it is living and active. The author of Hebrews here is ascribing, uh, he's using personification, he's saying he's using personal or a, yeah, a personal language to describe a book, living and active. Consider here what Isaiah 55, 11 says about the living and active nature of the word. God speaking here. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing in which I sent it for. When God's word goes out, it is living and active and it always accomplishes the purpose that God sends it out for. It never returns empty. How is that possible? What makes the word of God living and active and able to accomplish the purposes for which God sent it? What gives Scripture its living and active attribute? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what makes the Word of God living and active. As I said before, when the Word of God goes out, the Holy Spirit accompanies it and it accomplishes God's purposes through it. The Holy Spirit is what makes the Word of God powerful in our lives. Consider what commentator Albert Moeller says about the way in which the Spirit uses the Word of God in our lives. He says, Scripture is like a scalpel wielded by God to perform spiritual surgery. In conjunction with the Holy Spirit, the Word of God cuts through the sin and darkness of the human heart to restore spiritual health and vitality for Christ. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring this about in our hearts. Now I want to focus in here. How does the Spirit of God specifically use the Word of God to, as Moeller says, restore spiritual health and vitality for Christ? How does he do that? The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to restore spiritual health and vitality for Christ 
through laying before our hearts the gospel, the person and work of Jesus on every page. And this is where I believe the transforming power of the scripture is most clearly seen. In the spirit revealing to us Jesus as we read. Let's look a little bit deeper into this. Turn with me to our final scripture, Luke 24. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. We'll look specifically at verses 25 through 27. To give you a little bit of context, Luke 24 picks up with the resurrection of Jesus. And then after his resurrection, we get this really awesome scene where Jesus appears to some of his disciples who are walking along the road to the nearest town, uh, the town of Emmaus. And he appears to them and, and they don't realize that it's him. They don't understand that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they don't know that, that this is Jesus who shows up and begins talking to them. And so Jesus engages them in conversation about himself. And they're like, man, we're super discouraged. We thought this guy was the Messiah, this Jesus from Nazareth. We thought he was the Christ, but now he's dead. And uh, we just wasted the last three years of our lives. And Jesus, kind of in disguise here, is is interacting with them in conversation. And, And this is what he concludes the conversation with. Look at verse 27, or I'm, I'm sorry, 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Look again at verse 27. And beginning with Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and all of the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all things the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The truth laid out here by Jesus is that the whole of the scriptures specifically the Old Testament, but we know also the New Testament, reveal Christ to us. Pastor Thabiti Anawable concludes from this truth that we don't properly read our Bibles until we see how what we are reading connects with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is what we often refer to here at Fairlawn as the gospel, the person and work of Jesus. We don't properly read our Bibles until we see how what we are reading connects to the gospel, Jesus and his work. It is essential for us to understand that we must see the gospel in all of the Bible, but we must also understand what this has the power to do in our lives. Roll your eyes down to verse 32 of the same chapter, and we'll see what it did in the life of Jesus' disciples. Verse 32, the disciples said this, They said to each other, 
Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The hearts of his disciples came alive, were burning within them because they saw Jesus in the scriptures. Seeing Jesus in the scriptures radically changed their lives. This is why we value gospel-focused teaching at Fairlawn. Because we sincerely believe what this scripture says. That the word of God and its gospel message transforms lives. Thank you. Amen. And we're not just talking about those people who don't believe in Christ who need to be changed and transformed. When we talk about the word of God and the gospel message transforming our lives, we're talking also about people who already believe in Jesus. Consider the way Paul spoke of this reality in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, And we all, Christians, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How does Paul say that we are changed and transformed into the image of Christ? By beholding the glory of the Lord. By beholding the glory of Christ in the scriptures, we are being transformed into the same image of the one that we see in it from one degree of glory to another. Puritan John Owen says it this way, when we behold the glory of Christ by faith, every grace in us will be stirred up. Did not our hearts burn within us? We have to understand that seeing Jesus in all of the word is the lifeblood of the disciple. It is what stirs our heart to worship Christ. It is what satisfies our deepest longings. It is what sustains us in our deepest sorrows. It is what makes us long for holiness. It is what makes us passionate about sharing the gospel with others. This is the glory of the word of God. It transforms our lives as the Holy Spirit brings us to behold the glory of Christ on every page. If we long to be changed and transformed more and more into the glory of Christ, we have to pray and ask the Spirit to show us Him in the Word. And we need to get better at seeing Him in the Word. The glory of the Scriptures is found in its transforming power as the Holy Spirit allows us to behold the glory of Christ written in the Word. The Word of God is necessary for our maturity as disciples. 
It is necessary because it is completely uh, uh, essential and profitable for our entire lives in matters of doctrine and conduct. And it is also necessary because it so gloriously changes us. If you want to be changed, get in the Word. I don't have much to say here in regards to a conclusion for this message. I'm just going to say it. If you want to grow as a disciple, you have to be in the Word. No exceptions. And I hope that the Word of God is starting to look a little bit more like that chicken marsala look to me. I hope you're beginning to see the glory and the beauty of the Word, and I hope that the Spirit is working in your heart to create a desire and a hunger within you for it. Now, with this being the last sermon in this series, I feel a bit of responsibility to conclude our series as a whole. And so let me just do that for a moment and then we'll be done. As I said before, much of our series has been uh, about teaching you how to follow Jesus, how to be a more faithful disciple of Jesus, how we grow as disciples. But we taught you these things not so you could simply grow, but so you could help other people grow as well, so you could disciple someone else. Now, I'd just like to leave you with one last quote that offers a vital encouragement to us. And I stumbled across this as I was preparing for this message, and I thought it just fit perfectly for the end of our series. Commentator Andreas Kostenberger says this, Mentoring and disciple-making don't, don't merely involve imparting a body of information, but most vitally entail modeling one's convictions in real life. Mentoring and disciple-making most vitally entail modeling one's convictions in real life. Let us be disciple makers who teach other disciples by modeling the things that we have learned. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious to give us your word. How lost we would be, quite literally, without it. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to open up our hearts to see the beautiful, glorious, authoritative nature of your word, how necessary it is for our lives. And that by laying hold of that glory and seeing it, that we would not be able to help ourselves from taking it up. I pray that you would use our study of your word to radically change and transform our lives as we see Jesus more clearly in it. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.